Hello, Littlefield. Hello, New York. And welcome to Hell on Earth. Where is it? Let's get it going. Come on. There we go. Welcome to Hell on Earth. I'm so happy to have you all here today. Uh, we are here to celebrate the launch of our new podcast, to celebrate uh, neck ruffles and cavalier hats. But to start off today, Why we're going to... we ever stop dressing like this? This is the pinnacle of male fashion. Today, at this live event, we are going to be uh, telling a story that is adjacent to our main story. It's, it's kind of a prequel of yeah, sorts. Yeah, basically, yeah. A, a character-based prequel. A Phantom Menace type deal. So, I have to start tonight by asking... How many of y'all like magic? All right, how many of y'all like alchemy? And how many of y'all like piercing the gossamer veil of reality to perceive the untold secrets of the celestial realm? Let's hear it. Now, how many of y'all like the British Empire? All right. Well, not so many, and that's what I was expecting, but... What if we were to tell you that the British Empire was conceived and justified by one of the most famous magicians, alchemists, and celestial prophets of the 16th century? Yes, we're talking about a person who entered a world where everyone understood that there was greater potential than existed at the moment. There were new worlds to discover. There were new technologies uh, to, uh, to u- utilize and there was a, a religious reformation that was giving people new ideas of how to relate to one another. But no one knew exactly how to go about birthing this new thing. The only people who think that they have some ability to peer through this veil, while everybody else is just trying to you know, stay alive, are uh, freaks, are weirdos, are nerds, psychos. Uh, and the only way that they're going to build this new world is by believing in their own ability to literally break through reality and through the use of magic. So today, what we put together for you is a brief over... Yes, we'll get to the love fest later. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Uh, But what we put together is a brief overview of a very curious individual, uh, someone adjacent to our main story, but whose life and interests intersect with many important elements of the world of hell on earth. So today we are going to be talking about 16th century English alchemist, magician, mathematician, and occultist, John Dee. There he is. We got to bring back the triangular beard. Yeah, so to modernize this guy, John Dee, he looks like a wizard. Uh, And if you saw him today, more likely you'd think that he was a crazy person. Uh, But his life gives us a glimpse in just how these political and scientific ideas are created and spread during this time when modern notions uh, of like rational state building and scientific method have not yet been fully conceived of. And this, he shows how alchemy created real results and prefigured modern science and how the courts and courtiers of the time often cynically used new religious ideas and the explorations and advancements and the scientific technology uh, insights of people like D uh, to advance their own material interests uh, underneath the sovereign. So, shut up, please stop. Uh, so, John D was born on July thirteenth, fifteen twenty-seven, in London, in the neighborhood surrounding the infamous 
Tower of London, literally grew up in the shadow of the tower. He was baptized in and grew up in St. Dunstan's Church on the East End, the ruins of which you can still see. Uh, St. Dunstan being, of course, the patron saint of goldsmiths and alchemists. And here you see him in his uh, legendary uh, story of grabbing the devil by the nose with his goldsmithing tongs. And before you ask her, yes, he does look like Danny DeVito. (laughs) Uh, So Dee's family had originally migrated to London from Wales. Uh, Their name Dee derived from the Old Welsh for black. Uh, Dee's father, Roland Dee, claimed the family descended from an ancient ancient Welsh lords, a lineage that John would become obsessed with later in his life. Uh, Roland was a mercer, which is a merchant uh, from the merchant class, and uh, he was a courtier of Henry VIII's court. Uh, he, Roland was part of the developing, striving middle class, and the D family's fortune rel- rose and fell as Roland triangulated his favor- favorability in the cutthroat world of Henry's court. So we're going to talk on the main show more about the Tudors, but one thing to know about them is that they were this Welsh... Uh, dynasty that came into London, and when they did, they brought a lot of Welsh people with them from the army and, and uh, uh, from the different classes, all of whom were able to use uh, their relation to the king as a way to gain influence in court. Uh, and court, what is court? What do we talk about? It's essentially a bunch of people, high nobles mostly, who were the professional friends of the king because it's boring. You're sitting in a drafty castle, guy comes along, you got to sign a, 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 a parchment. Uh, you, you haven't crapped in weeks. <laughs> you need distraction. And that's essentially what the court provided. A daily retinue of people that you could shoot the shit with, play a loot with, kid, watch capering of jesters with. They'd come uh, and uh, change your pants at night and yeah. turn down your bed. One of them, the hold your hand of, while you fall asleep. One of them, the groom of the stool's job was literally hand you the thing to wipe your ass with when you were on the toilet. But uh, that provided intimate access exactly. to the king. Exactly. So you had a, uh, these guys who were, were professional friends of the king and who used their access to advance the economic interests of their families and friends. Uh, and that's what everyone was trying to get near. Uh, and the Dees were one of these uh, Welsh families who was trying to uh, insinuate themselves into the good graces of the Tudors in order to advance their material interests. So Roland, John Dee's dad, was one of the people who were in the distant outskirts of this, but always trying to wheedle in and get a little influence. And he eventually uh, gets a lucrative customs collecting assignment uh, and becomes a bigwig in his neighborhood. He's uh, a leader in the Mercer's Guild. He's a uh, head, one of the head families of St. Dunstan's Church um, until, of course, a shift in the court society and the Mercer's uh, Organization of London takes away his customs collecting assignment. The family fortune spiral, and eventually he is uh, shamed for attempting to steal some plates from St. Dunstan's church to sell, to pay off some debts. No good. He gets kicked out of high society. But they have enough money to send little John D. off to school. So John studies at St. John's College at Cambridge and then becomes one of the founding fellows of Trinity College here, uh, which was founded at the time that he went there by Henry VIII. Here, uh, D. establishes himself some early cred as a wonder worker for creating a fabulous stage effect of a giant flying beetle for a production of Aristophanes' piece. Has anybody here seen this, Aristophanes' piece? Any Aristophanes heads? Was there a big beetle, sir? Did it fly? Were you amazed? Okay, well... (laughs) Well, okay. Nowadays, you might go to the the theater and see a giant flying beetle and be like, yawn, but at that time, it was pretty impressive. No one knew how he did it, and he kept a secret for his whole life. And later... 
he would come back to this. Obviously, the myth of this beetle might be uh, exaggerated because D had to constantly kind of revise his own history as various uh, attacks of hereticism and evil magic working were applied to him. And this was one of the things that he kept coming back to being like, oh, no, no, no. I, I just do I just do cool stage effects. I made the beetle fly. Everybody loved the beetle. Um, so that's his, one of his early uh, works of magic. Uh, but as Dee's family fortune collapses, uh, collapses, John hightails it from England for the first of many European sojourns. Uh, he studies in Brussels under Gemma Frisius and, of course, Gerardus Mercator, uh, where he becomes familiar with the cutting-edge uh, geography and astronomy, collects globes, maps, astrolabes, and all the new continental uh, scientific toys. You, of course, might be familiar with uh, Gerardus Mercator from his famous projection. He is the one who made the flat map. Yes, oh, yes, on. yes. We're he was trying his best. This is from 1569. He did this with a bunch of, like, astrological charts. He literally just, like, looked at some numbers and guessed, and that's how he did Look at, look at, look at that. Europe. That's very impressive. Yeah, no, oh, yes. Greenland's too big. You yes. do better. Yes, yes. We can all accuse him now of Afro-minimalism, but he did this from, like, a study in Brussels. Yeah. So, you know. Give the man his damn credit. Uh, so, D is studying with this guy and becoming actually quite well learned in the arts of astronomy and geography and stuff like that. Uh, after that, he returns to England, uh, where he's offered a role as a lecturer at Oxford, to which he says, which probably was the biggest Very fuck up in his idea. life. Because uh, he basically doesn't have a job for the rest of his life. But yeah. he turns down this job because, no, Oxford is focused on things like grammar and rhetoric, and he wants logic he wants math he wants, he wants STEM. science he's he a wants stem. stem he's a stem guy he's a stem lord and he's sick of the humanities the literal humanities when they invented that shit he's yes. like really rhetoric i'll be over here uh creating new shapes uh but he does get set up with a little bit of income because he gets installed as a rector uh at a, a parish uh uh, church in far off a place that he barely ever goes to. This is like a one of these typical things of like a lower. You just get like a job yeah. collecting rents from a church. You, you, would, miles you away. would do nothing, and you would just get a percentage of the incomes of the lands associated with a, a, an abbey or something. It yes. was a perfect no show job, and yeah, you'd get them if you were favored by the court. And uh, D did well under uh, Henry's son uh, Edward, the kid, the boy king. When you saw a uh, big uh, explosion of Protestantism, where they tried to go full hog Protestant. Henry VIII had taken over the church, but he was a Catholic, really, his whole life. He never forsook the sacraments. He kept to uh, Catholicism in its form. Uh, the people around his son were much more interested in extending uh, Protestantism to its father's extent. That's when they started smashing up all of the, uh, the, uh, the glass you know, in the churches and stuff. Uh, and during that period... Uh, he was advancing, but then Edward dies at 15 and his older half sister, Mary, the Spanish Mary, uh, comes in, uh, and essentially tries to undo the entire reform reformation in England, bring back Catholicism completely. Uh, and D at first is caught up in this and it helps it further ruins his family, but, uh, he is able to weasel his way out of whatever trouble he was in and becomes one of the uh, persecutors of Protestants yes. uh, during Mary's reign. Because one of the key things about being an alchemist, mathematic type guy is you've got to know which way the winds are turning and how to kiss an ass if you want to stay above ground. Uh, and he does a great job of that. Part, part of this uh, Mary's reign is uh, 
She was briefly uh, married to Philip II Habsburg, creating the tantalizing possibility of a Habsburg takeover of England around this time. It is wild to think of it counterfactually because she did have she was married to the king of Spain. There's a possibility uh, that England just becomes a counter-reformation Catholic power. Uh, but her, her she just dies. She drops dead before she hits 40. Uh, and we don't get that because God uh, is Protestant. That's yes. one thing we learned from doing the research <laughs> for this show is that if you go by who is favored by chance, by nature, the answer is the Protestant. Yes, almost every, throughout the series, almost every act yeah. of God that could intervene in the, the conflict almost always lands on yeah. the side of the Protestants. Yeah, honestly, yeah. Like the Catholics should have taken a hint at some point. Yes. Uh, so, yes, as Matt said, D is coming into his own at this moment. Uh, and as he uh, leaves the Catholic side of the conflict, he gets hooked up to Elizabeth's court and waiting. She has her own very si- uh, half-sister, Elizabeth. Uh, has her own court, her own uh, system of courtiers around her, and D uh, gets into that. And he starts by cor- uh, calculating a, ingratiating himself to uh, Elizabeth by calculating, there she is, face tuned to shit uh, in, this, in this photo. Uh, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll see a few f- uh, photos of Elizabeth throughout this, or paintings of Elizabeth. You always notice the uh, completely ornate dress that she is wearing, and then just her face is a white oval with spots. Yeah, she looks like, she looks like Mark Zuckerberg in every painting. Uh, so he gets hooked up with Elizabeth and uh, performs his first services for her by calculating a horoscope about Elizabeth herself and also her sister, Mary. Uh, now, this is an actual horoscope written by John D. Uh, this is his own handwriting. This is his own calculating. And uh, the, I was looking into this, and the, one of the interesting things about this, this is specifically about the date of a supernova recorded in the year 1006, uh, which is 500 years before uh, D actually lived. And the uh, analysis of this horoscope I saw by modern horoscopians horoscopians, said that this is accurate to the star position of where this star would be in 1006 and where all these constellations would be in 1006 that we understand it from modern science. So he, like, this is how good he is at this stuff. Is that He's very good at the math part. Yes. Which, yeah, 500 years after he read that a star, new star appeared in the sky, he could accurately math out where every single planet was in the sky that time that, to, that is accurate to us now. So That's yeah. what's frustrating to me as someone who looks back and like, oh, I could have done that. I, I could have <laughs> kissed these guys' ass and told them that the sun was telling them that, that they were good boys. But the actual math, I never could have. Yeah, I, no. I never could have shown my work. <laughs> So Dee's calculating horoscopes for a, about Mary's reign for Elizabeth, trying to say, oh, this is going to happen about Mary. This gets him in big trouble right about now because there is a difference in mid-16th uh, century English culture about predictive versus descriptive horoscopes. Basically, if you say that something is going to happen in the future, it is tantamount to like hexy, like willing it to happen. And so you're willing it to happen, or at the very least, you're hoping it happens. Yes, exactly. Which is not good. So he gets uh, locked up, thrown in the Tower of London for effectively like hexing the queen uh, in about 1555. This is a black mark that follows him the rest of his career. Uh, he eventually gets hauled in front of the Star Chamber. He does some apologies. Uh, he admits to doing, quote, lewd and vain practices of calculating and conjuring. So you don't, you don't want to be doing calculating to these people. Uh, his other big thing, his other big play with Mary's court is that he offers to uh, 
a very bold and specific plan for establishing a national library, uh, which part some of the people in the court are into. But again, they're like, great. So you're going to compile our great histories and romances and poems and uh, all our wonderful stories and stuff. And he's like, no, math, science, occult, esoteric uh, uh, alchemy. And they're like, well, no, we don't want that. So uh, he does not get that commission. Uh, but the upshot is is that starting around here, uh, D at his home in Mort Lake, which you know I feel like has a very you know a metal name, Mort, Mort Lake, Lake like yeah, death, Lake of Death, that's Lake of Death, yeah. John John D that means black, yeah. like everything about him is very. I'm uh, not going swimming there. Yes, but he starts amassing this library that will, in his own lifetime, be the largest private library in all of England and one of the largest libraries in all of Europe. Yes, and so Eng eventually Elizabeth comes to power, uh, and. She is, she creates this synthesis between the uh, the Protestant Church that uh, Edward and his uh, his court was trying to create, and the uh, Counter Reformation Catholic uh, Church that uh, Mary was trying to impose. Where it's this dog's breakfast synthesis, where they keep a lot of the uh, theological principles of uh, of Protestantism, uh, a lot of a lot of the the received ideas of the Protestant. Uh, uh, confession while maintaining the structures of formal bishops appointed by the, the royal family that are associated more with Catholicism uh, through the act of supremacy and the act of uniformity, creating a church structure that uh, satisfies literally zero people. It's amazing. The Catholics feel like it is heathenistic and godless. The Protestants, especially at this point, there's a very fervent Calvinist middle class now, horrified by all of the pews and the stained glass and the appointed bishops. Everybody's pissed at this. Uh, and Elizabeth uh, is able to, to navigate this and mollify the Protestants by creating a foreign policy that is fixed on supporting other Protestant forces in Europe. Like, look, I'm not the perfect Protestant, but I am the defender of Protestantism and uh, uh, a champion of Protestantism in the war with the Catholic powers, trying to basically create the first ideological uh, uh, alliances in Europe now along confessional lines. Uh, and that is going to get Catholics very pissed, <laughs> and they're going to keep trying to kill her uh, and invade England as a result. I think we talk about this on the main show, but maybe even in the last episode that came out, but it's uh, funny to what extent the Catholics are totally down with assassinating anyone they want. They love us. They do all the assassinations during this period. They kill two kings of France, the, a Stadtholder uh, and they, and of the, uh, the United Provinces, and they try to kill Elizabeth a bunch of times, too. A bunch of times. Yeah. Uh, so Elizabeth ascends to the throne in 1558 after Mary dies. Mary had this whole thing where she pretended to be pregnant for a while, which causes a lot of people to get very, uh, very scared, but then it fizzles out and she dies. Elizabeth, yeah, she she had a fake pregnancy. I think she was doing some secret shit. She was yes. just like she was trying to manifest it literally yes. into her womb, but it didn't work. Yes, uh, and so she uh, Elizabeth ascends, and D is on the periphery of the court, but he has some interest from Elizabeth. She's but she's buying. She is a, a, a very esoteric, uh, mystical streak to her, so she she's interested in this stuff. Uh, and so D starts starts trying to ply his trades in the Elizabethan court, and what can he offer? Okay, we're going to start trying to explain the mathematical and, and magical principles of D, which are very esoteric, so you're going to have to stick with me for this. D is obsessed with light and optics. Uh, these are act some of D's actual instruments that are uh, kept in the British, uh, British Museum. Uh, this is a, an astrological chart. 
that is an obsidian uh, reflector. That is a literal crystal ball. They actually use that shit. Another reflector. It's a hey, reflector. Hey, orbs, folks. It wasn't just, it's not just they, a meme. That was real. Uh, so here's the best I can describe it, is that the prevailing theory at the time is that vision worked by essence of your body leaving your eyes, like basically a bit of your soul, and hitting things and interacting with them, and in that way, receiving the information or, or creating the information about it. If that is true, then the light that is coming from the celestial bodies, the stars, the planets, whatever, contains some part of the celestial energy, the spirit of the, the angels that are the stars. So if, which is what makes a horoscope work. If the stars are in a certain position, you're obtaining certain celestial uh, energies from them. That, that is literally the power of God being broadcast down into the world. And so that is why he's working with things like reflectors and crystal balls, because different ways to capture light uh, brings different ways of viewing these celestial energies. Uh, so also, you know, again, this is you see stuff like this. There it is. It's the sun broadcasting its powerful energies down to, uh, down to you. And on top of this, uh, you know, D applies his genius mind at math. Some of his astrological uh, theorems required 25,000 individual calculations based on various points of bodies to reach uh, his, his, the full potential of his horoscopes. And the idea is that all of these things, all these ways that light interacts, all these ways that he's calculating things are giving him ideas. And these ideas are themselves Angels. Angels. Folks, they're yes. angels. He's talking to yeah. the angels. Yes, because so, when you're trying to describe the mental process of, of coming to new conclusions that are opening literal, literal, like, breaches in reality that you can step through, the only way to make sense of that is if it is coming from God in the form of his messengers, angels. Yes. And that's a, one thing that, to realize about D is that, you know, his thought process is, again, I'll say this word many times, esoteric. He is a deeply Christian. He is yeah. a True, true, true believer in the uh, the Bible. Yeah, he he accepts the the, the social world that he is receives, uh, which we all do, whether we want to believe we do or not. Yes, uh, and he is, as we've said, very good at the math part, and he is able to bring uh, uh, conclusions that just in, awe people who see them, and that make gives him an in with these different courts that he's going to be around. But his weakness is is that he can't do the ass kissing game that well. He's too committed to the logic and facts and truth of his statements to just let something by and be like, yeah, you know what? That's a good idea. Instead, he's like, ah, actually, <laughs> that's not going to work. And then, of course, no, nobody in a position of power wants to hear that. So that ends up working against him in his ass-kissing job. So at this time, D is actually calculating uh, for Elizabeth. He is meeting with the queen and doing this kind of work for her, creating horoscopes, creating uh, predictive uh, ideas, doing, you know, talking about where the position of stars and planets are, and she is indicating that she might give him some money sometime in the future. If you do me a horoscope today, I'll give you $2 tomorrow, two That's pounds tomorrow. One of the great things in your power as a sovereign is that you can always shine anyone on forever. Yes. You can promise some benefits, some a pension in the future uh, if they just keep giving you stuff, and they really have nowhere else to go. Right. So this... The payments fail to materialize, so D decides to take another sojourn to uh, the continent. And in the early 1560s, uh, D heads back. He goes from Belgium, where he studied previously, 
to Switzerland, to Venice, all the way to Rome, to read some of the, uh, the Vatican archives, and eventually to Bratislava and to Paris. All the time he is consulting with uh, Kabbalists, 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 Kabbalistic libraries, doing a bunch of research into the Kabbalah. Yes. So the Kabbalah is one of the key uh, uh, technologies, mental technologies that power the uh, early occult of this period. Uh, the way that you try to apply these questions of like, you know, uh, analyzing the world until it reveals itself is, well, what is the code? And the Kabbalah is a, uh, is a uh, Jewish numerological system that assigns a numerical value to every letter in the alphabet and then allows you to take those numerical values, combine them in such a way to find the secret meaning to the words that are on the page. And this is a thing, this is a technique that the entire generation of occultists that go through the, the uh, 15th, 16th century, the Renaissance occultists, uh, they use. It's one of the, the key uh, heuristics for it. And the thing about Kabbalah is that in Jewish practice, it's mostly useful as a meditative practice. If you've got a restless mind, you can't just sit with God. You can play with a little guy. You know, it's like, it's the... <laughs> It's the ball and the, 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 the cup, you know? And it makes sense. Like it's, you, look, you've got one text. Yeah. And so you've got to find it. as many ways like, to read, read it as possible. I've, I've read, read this thing. I've already read this thing 50 times. Well, okay, there's numbers. Thank you. And then you it's can like, add numbers like together and we can come up it's with... The, it's the placemat at the family restaurant. Yes. <laughs> giving you, here, take a crayon. Shut the fuck up. We're trying to eat. But at all the time, these people are putting these numbers together in new and different ways and inventing math. It's true. That, that's the thing is that, well, this is supposed to be a thing just to keep your mind occupied. If you apply it outside of a religious tradition, because these are not uh, Jews we're talking about, these are all Christians, it reveals these structures, which of course it will, because yes. it's just numbers. And, and the mind can pull everything out of the soup of, nu of uh, numerology. And that is the structure that these guys start using to build this uh, magical world that explains the world that they live in. And makes them believe they can transcend it. So he's consulting with all these uh, Kabbalists. Uh, and as part of his journey, he attends the coronation of Maximilian II Habsburg as the king of Hungary in September 1563. Uh, Maximilian II, as being coronated the king of Hungary, is on his way to becoming the Holy Roman Emperor. And in his coronation, DCs the possibility of this thing that we discussed on the last episode, the universal Monarch. Now, this uh, idea that we've discussed that is floating around uh, Europe is very important to magical ideas, too, because one of the things that structures all of this magical thinking, thinking is a return to unity, that l the world had become fractured and chaotic post the fall of man, of, of, of post the, the paradise of Dang Adam and Apple. Eve. And the goal of magical thinking is to put things back together, and that applies both to alchemy, of breaking down uh, element, uh, materials into their elemental forms and reconstructing them, and also to all uh, aspects of life, including politics. And so the idea is that we are moving towards this one point of unity, and at one point there will be a universal monarch who reunites all of Christendom, who will usher in the period of unity of paradise that will be alchemical perfection. Like all these things, the Philosopher's Stone and the Universal Monarch, these are all the same thing. Yes. Unity. That's what we're getting to. And so yes. he sees that potential in the Habsburgs and in Maximilian too. 
Yes. Uh, there, it's this dialectical relationship. It is a literal dialectic of enlightenment in the mind of these esotericists. Is that the, it's the enlightened esotericists are able to use their understanding of the world to find the candidate for a universal monarchy, help them achieve universal monarchy, and then once they have that power, they will use it to bring about general Hell enlightenment yeah. to the entirety of the world. And that is the process that guys like D really thought that they were contributing to. Sorry, it's time to be real. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Let me, get, let me be real here. Yes. I got to be real. There's a chance that we can be real. I don't want to get, I don't want to get yelled at. Possibility. There we go. All right. So, Maximilian II, Universal Monarch, Unity of All Things. That is what is racing through D's head as he sees his coronation as the king of Hungary. Uh, where are we? Uh, let me go by slide. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Here we go. Here we go. This boys. is pretty important. This is the thing. You guys, strap the fuck. Button the fuck up, slap nut fuck waffles. There's going to be a, a, a epic fart-twatting thread here. So with all of this stuff, the Kabbalah, the math, the universal monarch racing through his head, D sits down and writes the Monus Hieroglyphica. Dun, dun, dun. The fucking monad. It's the monad. The, folks, we're talking about the monad. Get ready. That is what's important. Do, 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 Reject do. modernity. Embrace monad. So D creates this symbol, the, mo, the singular monad, as a representation, description, and calling forth of this idea of universal unity that he is aiming for. And writes a, basically, he invents a shape. He invented a shape. He invents a shape. And you're laughing, but how many of you have invented a fucking shape? He invents a shape and writes a book analyzing it. And I'll try to go through what this means, but it's basically, you know, it, it, it contains all these alchemical symbols unified. It is into, unity and it's It's the monad. Folks, it's, 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 it's one. It's monad. It's one. It's the moon. It's silver. It's sun and uh, gold. It's the point that represents the unity. It's all the elements. It's the crucifix for indoor kids. Yes. It contains all of the essential elements, uh, all of the essential vitamins, elements, nutrients, Euclidean principles, uh, <laughs> all the riboflavin you need. Monad. Monad, folks. Monad, folks. Monad. <laughs> so he writes the Monus Hieroglyphica and dedicates it to Maximilian II uh, and sends it to Maximilian II. And would you, wouldn't you know it, never hears back. What uh, the hell, man? Now, the thing, this didn't make that big of a splash in England, but people got this The right book. people read it. The right people got it in their head. And so the monad ends up becoming uh, a key symbol in the Rosicrucian uh, vocabulary, which, which we'll get to, we'll get to later in the, in the season. Uh, but so, like, this is part of what creates the vocabulary, the spiritual and imaginative vocabulary of uh, our era, is guys like D just going out there and just, like, going off the dome. And inventing shapes. And then just finding that there are people who look at that and are like, damn, that's a bomb-ass shape. And then they, they do the thing, because what it is, is it is an algorithm, right, at the end of the day. This is what it is. It is a program that's supposed to unlock something in your mind. And what it unlocks is uh, the possibility that comes from understanding the world as a unity, as, yes. as one whole. And applying that knowledge to every particular element of your life. Doing that will unlock things and that is literally programming and it's a, i mean again this seems 
insane. Like, this is crazy stuff, right? But is he not saying that the math of geography, which is the immediate precursor to, let's say, laws of physics and how elements work and how the stars and planetary Astrology. objects work? You said it's geometry. Well, geometry, the Euclid stuff up there. Oh, yeah. But, like, the, ge the geometry, laws of motion, astronomy, elements, that there is an idea in his head that these are all one thing. Right. Which, which we now they know are. they are. That's all true. Yes. It's all connected to one another. So... But he did lacks he lacks the vocab, but he's grasping towards it. He's grasping. So it's not maybe as insane as it looks, though it looks pretty insane. The other the last thing I'll I say know. about I the just, I, everybody, just go home and just ponder the monad for a little bit. <laughs> ten minutes. I think if every day you ponder the monad for ten minutes, something's gonna happen. I don't know what. You might go become schizophrenic. I don't guarantee any results. The last thing I will say about the monad is I do think that the real unity that it offers is uh it he managed to make a shape that simultaneously looks both like a dick and tits. Yes, exactly. You're going to doubt the wisdom and genius of this? He's getting it like the deep structures, the symbols that get us off. All right. So we'll go forward. So he returns to England in 1664, and Matt, as you said here, he uh, begins his rigorous career of kissing Queen Elizabeth's ass. It's Around this time, uh, that occultism and occult practices are beginning to be used as an anti-Catholic cudgel in Elizabethan pop culture, in the press, basically, like because people are genuinely interested in this. He has access to Elizabeth's court. She is using his services, and not just his services, but other people's services, and there becomes this kind of propaganda war in the public sphere of various people, of various alchemists, and people aligned with various alchemists, basically writing like, you're a heretic. No, you're the one doing her heretical practices. No, this man is doing the black arts and communicating with uh, demons. No, no, no. I'm just talking to angels. I would never talk to a demon. Demon, lose my number. Yes. You know, and it's... But of course, they're all doing the same thing. Yeah. The deal. Well, there is, like, a slight difference in his, like, mathematical conjuring and then, like, folk magic. Well, ways. yes. That is the beer track, wine track distinction here, is that you have alchemy and then you have conjuring. And they boil down to your class relationships. Yes. People who went to college uh, and, and studied these books, they conjure, you know? Uh, but then there is just the folk They do alchemy. Uh, yeah, they do alchemy. Uh, but then there is conjuring, which is the, uh, the folk magic of peasantry that has been unbroken since the times of Rome and never even been really integrated into Christianity. Yes. And those people are doing, they're vibing out, but that's considered demonic because it has not been civilized, basically. Uh, and, and yeah, so these guys all look down on conjuring, uh, but it, it's all the same practice, just in, in the different cultural garb. They're all seeking the same thing. But what the people in power who are employing these alchemists are really seeking is gold. They want to do the thing that all the alchemists for their philo philosophical reasons, because the philosopher's stone that will bring unity to the, all the universe is the main thing that it does is, as we all know, turn base metals into gold. And Elizabeth is actively hiring alchemists to pursue the Philosopher's Stone. A geyser swearing that they can generate 33,000 pounds a year and when they don't of gold from base metals. And it, the belief in this is so strong right now is that when a guy comes up to Queen Elizabeth and says, I can produce 33,000 pounds of gold a year using alchemical practices, when he doesn't produce that gold, the thought is not that he can't do it. The thought is, is that he's keeping it all for himself. D, D doesn't offer that. He, he would never make, it, make such promises that no. he couldn't keep. No, he does he dabble in it. The, he does claim to stars. be seeking the stone. Yeah. And he does alchemical uh, 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 
experiments. But yeah, he never uh, does the full con Carney thing, which was, of course, very easy because there's this desperate need, especially when they're competing with the Habsburg Empire, which at this point has gold and silver coming out of both ends because new techniques in mining are allowing for huge uh, areas of silver and, and, and coal to be dug out of, uh, or iron rather, to be dug out of Central Europe, uh, their uh, ancestral Austrian uh, area. And then in the New World, their new colonies in, in uh, Latin America, they're just literally pulling it out of the ground thanks to exploiting uh, native labor. And they have nothing. England's got shit. They could, they're literally just sending bulk wool. They, they're essentially... <laughs> They are essentially a petrostate for wool. <laughs> like, that's it. They don't even make the wool into anything. They, they got to go to, like, the Netherlands to go to a place that's got the sophisticated artisan culture to, like, create fine elements out of this wool. They just bulk it up, shear the sheep, and send it across the fucking uh, channel. They are broke, basically. And the, the alchemist, the reason that he was somebody who could get his uh, foot in the door of a court is not because he was telling him he's going to talk to God. They don't give a shit. I'm not going to tell them about, uh, oh, I've got a new shape for you. They want to know <laughs> where the gold is. And that is the uh, material uh, uh, element to their searching for knowledge. And uh, this is a, uh, a Habsburg silver coin pulled out of the Potosi mines uh, in modern-day Bolivia, I believe, Bolivia or Peru. You can tell because it says the Plus Ultra on this, uh, on this coin. Yes, Charles, Charles V's uh, personal slogan. Yes. Yeah, still further. Still you further. just could, couldn't couldn't stop uh and of course they never did turn lead into gold but they did conjure gold out of nothing by creating the market yes because what these people really want when they want gold is yes they want to win in a, in a, 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 comp a competition with the other powers of europe uh they also wanted to create an economy they wanted to circulate and you are limited by in this era by how much actual gold how much uh, precious species. metal species yeah. you can extract, but the market creates this pseudo currency, this symbolic currency that essentially reproduces the amount of value in the world far beyond what anyone here would have thought was possible. They would have all assumed, oh, you need to literally turn gold, lead into gold in order to allow for this degree of circulation of currency. And they do it, they create it, but it's just not what they thought it was going to be. It's just a different kind of black magic. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, as various alchemists are competing for pat uh, patronage, D's background, and of course this 1550s uh, hit against him for uh, conjuring against Mary comes up more and more. Uh, again, to return this propaganda war, around this time is when a, uh, a guy named Vincent Murfin, uh, who's basically like the J. Jonah Jameson, get me stories about John D, uh, shows up, and he's like constantly hounding him in the press. Uh, John Fox is book of acts and monuments. The book of martyrs comes out around this time. This was a key piece of Protestant propaganda in 1560s and beyond England. Basically a list of martyrs, people who had been Protestants who had been killed by Mary during her bloody re-Catholicization. And this will come out in several editions over Dee's life. And he's basically inserted and removed from it over and over about whether or not he had actually testified against Protestants when pulled in front of the Star Court. Like, at first he's in it, and then later it's, just, he's, it's redacted to say, like, a certain doctor did some bad things. But I have to bring up Acts and Monuments uh, because in this book, uh, John Fox's Acts and Monuments, there is recorded the martyrdom of one Christopher Wade, uh, who was executed by burning in July... 
1555. Now, Christopher Wade, this is a very grainy uh, engraving, uh, picturing him being led to the stake over there. This is from the Book of Martyrs uh, about what I must presume is my ancestor's uh, martyrdom. He cried earnestly unto the people to take heed of the doctrine of the whore, <laughs> to take heed of the doctrine of the whore of Babylon, exhorting them to embrace the doctrine of the gospel preached in King Edward's days, whom the sheriff, thus speaking to the people, often interrupted, saying, "Be quiet, Wade, and die patiently." <laughs> Once the fire started, quote, he was heard by no man to speak, still holding his hands over his head, together towards the heaven, even when he was dead and altogether roasted. Altogether roasted, the they Christopher roasted Wade ass. story. Uh, so here's to Christopher Wade. Yeah, pour Martyr, one out for the OG Chris Wade. Rip. So while these guys are doing this stuff, while Dee and these guys are doing all these occult uh, research, they're and accidentally generating real scientific discoveries because they are fucking around with metals and shit and things are going to happen one way or the other, because they're doing things nobody else is doing, bringing these things together in, a, in a, uh, an attempt to create something that will eventually become the scientific method. Uh, and this is all to try to build that philosopher's stone, uh, but it doesn't do that. But what it does do is, for example, uh, there's a new method that extracts copper from iron uh, and that vastly uh, increased the productivity of mines in Europe and contributed to the, uh, the monetary revolution that fuels the crisis of the 17th century. Uh, and that technique was in use up until the 19th century. Yeah. Like this is a re these are real scientific advancements that come from this magical research uh, because there's nothing there to, uh, motive to support pure research. The only thing that's going to motivate people to do it is not a career track. It's not tenure. It's personal will, desire. The, 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 and not, that's not going to be, oh, I want to increase you know, copper productivity in the third <laughs> quarter. It is, I want to see God. I want to say <laughs> hi to God. I want him to pat me on the back and tell me I'm a good boy. <laughs> that is the most primal fucking urge you could possibly have. And it motivates these guys to spend hours, hours and hours doing this stuff. And it, until the modern era with its, its, its uh, 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 division of labor, modern division of yeah. labor and role and professionalization, you're not going to get that kind of pure motive fire to get people to do the kind of tedious uh, often dead-end research that leads to scientific advancement. So, D can't produce gold. However, he can produce another thing that is of use to Elizabeth, and that is ideological justification. And this is where we get to the British Empire. Uh, D begins writing about Elizabeth's foreign policy. He is obsessed with, uh, pardon my Welsh, uh, Maddock Ab Abwen Gwynaid. <laughs> This guy, a uh, legendary uh, um, Welsh prince who, well, wouldn't you know it? I'm checking the records here. It, 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 he appears to be my John Dee's ancestor. Wow. How, who would have guessed? Who apparently, uh, who is legend to have led an expedition to the New World uh, in the 10th century or the 1100s. Uh, and so Dee starts writing about these, pulling up all these ancient records and creating this justification uh, in the terms of the 16th century that Elizabeth has rights to the new world, that she has rights to Europe, which is, uh, you know, there to, in this world that is defined by these dynastic titles and privileges, the thing that is necessary to move forward in an expansionary state project. Uh, he's basically writing white papers for the Privy Council. He's like Matty B. Stats, but he is Matty B. Ma or Johnny B. Magic. Uh, 
And he understands that this truth to appeal to these uh, people uh, has to be shrouded in a sense of mysticism and esotericism. He says, either truth is kept from princes or they will not believe it being told. So he writes all these things in, in a semi-coded uh, language of, uh, you know, uh, mystical revelation. Um, and he's also doing actual advising of actual explorers, actual expeditions, where he is teaching them how to use cutting-edge mapping techniques, cutting-edge na- navigation techniques, literally charting the courses of 16th-century expeditions to Newfoundland to attempt to find the Northwest Passage, to try to find places in modern-day Canada where they might find some gold. Please let there be gold in Canada. There isn't really, but they bring back mounds and mounds of dirt and have alchemists sift through it to see if they can find any... Uh, it's uh, true. They, have, they just get tons of dirt that they ship at the cost of human lives from the fucking frozen waste of Canada, and then they just have a guy use a mortar and pestle for like six months, and he's like, well, this is kind of shiny. shiny? I don't know. A little bit. Better go back and but like, they, it's amazing. They do it like they got a handful of stuff, and then it turns out half of it was just like some other stuff that they threw in there, and then they ended up going back. That's how desperate they were. They yes. did two dirt hauls. But Dee's literally planning these these whole things with and like teaching them how to read maps and stuff. So he's but, doing that. But the, the 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 reason that they're so motivated now is because the competition that they're in with the other states of Europe has gotten sharper. Uh, the Dutch have revolted. The, the, uh, your Majesty, the Dutch are revolting. You're telling me. <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> Classic. It always works. Oh, it's so good. Uh, <laughs> this le- this, this is a massacre in Harlem yes. around this time. They're the Council of Dutch. Blood. Yes. So fucking metal. God, this is the most metal time in history. Metal was invented yes. during this period. It's the sound of the People smashing. say metalheads will think it's like the Viking times. No, not enough people with n- enough sophistication to do really metal shit yeah like these kinds of just lining people up and knocking their heads off with swords yeah women and children all over this all over the town of harlem uh for the the attempt to become independent from the spanish uh empire so as part of queen elizabeth's policy of trying to build this protestant front to shore up her her support at home she supports the materially supports the dutch revolt gives uh 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 Dutch ships get a safe harbor. She sends over men and material. This puts her in the sights of Spain, which is the most powerful force in Europe at the time. So they got to do something to make up this deficit. Uh, and now the universal monarch, your John D. Oh, was it Rudolph II told me to fuck off? Or I'm sorry, Max uh, Maximilian II told we'll me to fuck off. But here's Queen Elizabeth, and she's listed to be, maybe she's the universal monarch. Uh, and then now you could finally do the whole point of this, have Queen Elizabeth, Immunitize the damn eschaton already. And what's going to help her do that, help him do that, is the signs of heaven telling him, just as it did everybody else, that he was in an apocalyptic moment. And one of these signs was the 1572 supernova. This is Tycho Brahe looking. A new star appears in the sky. It just shows up. Well, how would you not think that God is trying to tell you that something is is going to happen? the stars and we chart our lives by them. And oh, wait, where'd that guy come from? So, yeah, we got Tycho Brahe here who had a tin nose. Tin nose. You might say, oh, Tycho Brahe had no nose. How did he smell? Awful. Uh, So this thing should make everybody shit their pants. They're like, what the fuck? This is one of only uh, eight events, eight stellar events that were visible to the human high. Yeah, eight of these supernova Only ever these have ever happened. Uh, So, like, this is the omen. This is obviously to everyone, learned and unlearned, this is an omen. Um, And he starts writing manuscripts with, ty- with uh, things in them like uh, Elizabeth, now Queen of England, ordained by God to be Queen of Jerusalem. 
Really just setting the bar high there. This is the worst one of the face yeah. ones. Can't even tell that she has a cheekbone. Yeah. Yeah. Like at this point, she's toying with the idea of becoming the, uh, the uh, sovereign of uh, the United Provinces, of the revolted Dutch provinces. But she decides not to. But one way or another, there is this drive towards empire. Uh, so D writes more and more along these things. Uh, he writes in 1577, uh, he's, he's digging up uh, Arthurian legends. He's going back into the Hundred Years' War records and like pulling out all of these, uh, these claims that you know, the English monarch should control France, should control the Low Countries. Um, he is advocating uh, strongly to create a petty navy royale that the sovereign should create and maintain a strong navy uh, to prevent invasions, to protect English merchant ships from piracy, to train more navigators and seamen, to stop illegal export. You get the idea that he sees that it is in England's best interest to, main, that, to maintain a command of the seas and an expansionary project o up across of its shores. Uh, there's something in here about eels, but you can actually go to your next thing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he points out that if the only way is England's going to be able to compete and dominate the scene is if they expand their colonies and their navy. And that ends up being the two keys to British dominion, the hegemony. Those are the things that end up uh, leading to the domination of England over the rest of the continent. And he is talking about this in the 1570s. And he is correct. He's 100% correct about all of it. Uh, and so D in the court becomes associated with the aggressive pro-Dutch part in court. Because, of course, there's always going to be multiple interests at court. They have a pro-Dutch policy. But remember, the Spanish just pay people. Like you, there was nothing against just giving a pension to an English lord as the king of Spain, and a lot of them were on pensions from France and England. They had, an, they, or uh, in Spain, they had an interest in saying, "Hey, maybe we take a, a Spanish uh, policy." So uh, he's against them. He is considered part of this uh, group of um, uh, pro-Dutch people who are rallied in opposition to a proposed marriage between Elizabeth and the French Duke of Anjou. Look at this, this guy. Somebody skipped leg day. Uh, and so these are the people in court saying, no way. No, she's not marrying a French, king, French king, uh, consort. We're not, go, we're not doing that again. Uh, uh, D is uh, asked to predict his horoscope, and he says uh, he, he was Biothantos, <laughs> born for a violent death. Yeah. I forgot to look in if he actually died violently, but he's, ba he's basically in Elizabeth's ear being like, yeah, you know what? He's gonna, a rock's going to fall on him or something. Yeah. And th there was a comet that appeared in the night sky during this period, and the tail pointed at the Netherlands, which they decided was bad. <laughs> Although I think it could just as well be good, right? Like, you could make an argument either way. But all, the, all this conflict with Spain leads to the famous Armada. That's going to happen in another few decades. Yeah. Uh, I'll br I bring this up just because it's interesting. Around also this time, one of the things that he performs... Uh, which would honestly be a great SVU uh, 1570s ep episode, uh, is that he dehexes the queen uh, in the streets of London under a dunghill, uh, melting from the heat of the dung, were found three wax dolls, one engraved with the name Elizabeth and the other two engraved with two of her prime courtiers. It was determined that these... Oh, and also, what, what is this? Uh, transfixed with a quantity of pig's bristles. Uh, this was taken as witchcraft meant to kill the queen. Uh, which D was brought in as basically a special investigator yeah. to uh, figure out what was going Here's on here. Here's B.D. Wong yeah. in an episode of SVU. Um, the, uh, though, and this became a big thing in the court for a while, although when it was uh, later figured out that it was somebody else hexing somebody else yeah. 
Just on somebody on the block hey, named Hillary. Yeah, exactly. Elizabeth. It's like, no, I'm talking about that bitch Elizabeth across the street. Elizabeth, the butcher's wife. Yeah. No, not the queen. I love the queen. Uh, the, everybody involved was slightly disgraced. Another, just everything that D does ends up being a black eye yeah. uh, to he his keeps getting, He keeps owning himself. Yeah. It, but Elizabeth did like D. That's the thing is that you see what a loser he is. And you're just like, it's amazing he was able to hang around the queen so long. And it was because he had a personal hold on her. She was... The, the thing he sketched, and of course it, it did, because she was an ambitious monarch who had visions for herself. He was telling her that all those visions are correct. Go yes. for it. So she loved to hear that. And so several times she went to visit him at his home in Mortlake, which is very unusual. Like his shitty little fucking uh, hovel. She was just, just filled with knocking books. on the front door of Queen of England. But there's a court around her, and they have no interest in her having her uh, uh, attention and, and uh, desires totally colonized by this weirdo who has no other he's, he doesn't represent anybody so he he is a threat to everybody just to say how intimately evolved he was around the 15 mid 1570s d is actually sent to germany to uh consult with the physician uh leonard thurnizer with a vial of elizabeth's urine to take it to this guy who is a urine specialist a urine alchemist to analyze it to determine what was wrong with Elizabeth. He had a special vial of his own design that you would boil the uh, urine in the bottom of it, and it had a series of gradations on it, and where the uh, evaporation of the urine landed, that would tell you what part of the body the ailment was located in. So he was sent on a 007 mission to take sacred royal urine to Germany. You know... Those guys must have drawn the short straw at Alchemy College, right? <laughs> the guys who get urine alchemist. It's like, no, you're not. Fuck gold. <laughs> you're just going to be swimming in piss for your entire life. But the thing is, once again, with alchemy, this you laugh. It's hilarious. Uh, about a generation later, in the, 16, in the late 1600s, there was a, a, a German alchemist named Henning Brandt who was doing what all these guys are doing. He was looking for the Philosopher's Stone. And one thing he decided to do to find it was to boil a giant flask of urine on and off, uh, unstoppably for months and see what happened. Gallons of urine. Gallons of urine. He was hoping he went, for a reaction. That he would, went like, around his village and collected urine from yes. everybody. He thought that there would be some sort of reaction within the urine that would lead up a chemical that would, could be used to what? Turn lead into gold, of course. So he fucking boiled this shit for months. And then one night, it starts of its own volition, glowing in the dark. Which this is the photo of. He's in a, you're in a dark fucking, you've been boiling piss for months. You're about to hand in your wizard's hat. And like, a fucking, I'm going to be a farmer. And then you just, all of a sudden, there's, you look around you, and there's this greenish glow, and you look, and the goddamn piss is glowing. He had discovered phosphorus. It's a key fucking uh, element in, in, the, in the scientific and technological revolutions that are going to come over the next century. And he found it from boiling piss. And again, there's a question of motivation and why these guys are so key to uh, building the bridge to our reality. No one else has the motivation to boil piss for four months than somebody who's going to think they're going to meet the, an angel in a field. All right, so back to D. Uh, now is when things start getting really wacky in D's life, uh, because I'm going to skip over the time. He ch- try around the time they're fixing the calendar, uh, the Gregorian calendar is coming out. Uh, but the Gregorian calendar, ooh, it's Catholic. So even though it's correct, 
the Protestants are like, no, we is, don't like that Catholic time. This is culture war 1.0, yes, by the way. Yes, really. Is that it was decades before Protestant Europe acknowledged the Gregorian uh, calendar, even though it correctly, it eliminated these extra hanging days, it fixed the thing. And they were like, fuck you. And D was this in the papery. And D was in the court talking to Elizabeth because he had done the calculations himself and fixed time himself and presented it to her and was like, "You could be the last reforming emperor, Empress. You can change time and fix the world if you adopt this system that I have perfectly mathematically correct." And he's like, and she's like, "No, that's Catholic shit." Yeah, and uh, smacks of the pulpit. No, uh, thank you. And so it, I think that the. Gregorian calendar eliminated 11 days and they they debated it for months and settled on a compromise where the uh, English calendar would re- eliminate 10 days so they could do their own thing. Again, another one of these Anglican compromises yep. that like is meaningless. No one's happy. Uh, so that's the time the time story. But uh, in March 1582, a man going by the name of Edward Talbot shows up on Dee's door and wheedles his way into Dee's household. This man's name, actual name, is Edward Kelly, and he starts becoming John Dee's scryer. Yes. Uh, he scries like a motherfucker. Uh, a scrying was the specific practice that Dee used of gazing into a crystal ball or a obsidian mirror to see the celestial light and talk to the angels. And Edward Kelly, who was a mysterious 26-year-old dude with a limp, prone to drunken outbursts, violent, unpredictable, <sighs> poor knowledge of court politics, but... What? Kelly could concoct. Who's that? Kelly could concoct for the uh, angels out of the English Bible and magical texts the most sonorous, majestic, apocalyptic language sufficient to overawe Dee's occasional doubts. Uh, and basically, this guy shows up and can improv angel talk yeah. so powerfully and so compellingly that he immediate like D basically immediately loses his mind for it. This guy, he he absolutely took the entire. Uh, suite of classes at UCB. He's he's a gold star uh, improv king. Yes. Because he has no formal training. He has no knowledge. He literally just sits in front of a uh, an orb or a mirror and tells the person in the room, I'm looking at an angel. The angel's talking to me. And then he would spell out backwards the letters that he was getting from the angel in like a, re- a, a, a reverse Ouija board type situation. And from that would be the story that what the angel was telling him. And this shit was just off of his dome. Yes. And it was, you read it, and it is complete sentences. It is fully coherent thoughts. And it's in D the was language a man- of the time. A maniacal diarier. And so D, so Kelly, diarrhea. Uh, Kelly would be like doing these scry sessions, and D would be writing down every single word. We have well, some of the best records we have of D's life are his angel reading diaries. Yeah. Yeah, so he'd be uh, writing all these, um, doing these diary sessions, marathon scry sessions, 12 hours at a time, uh, just going through uh, any of these things. Meanwhile, D is going, is just begging for money from the court, uh, trying to get any kind of patronage that he can. It's $50, for, 50 pounds for the year, uh, uh, 10 pounds for a Christmas gift, uh, two pounds to last me to the end of the month. Uh, what do you got in your pocket? Yo, dog, let me hold 10 shillings. Yes. So well, as this, Angel obsession is going. His court favorability is going down. Around this time, Kelly and Dee get wrapped up with a Polish nobleman named Ulbricht Lasky, uh, a Polish noble grifter, sinfully proud of his gigantic white beard worn tucked into his belt, which is a style I think could come back in, uh, let's say, Bushwick. Why not? Do people still do that joke? The hipster Bushwick? Um, 
Lasky was a, no- a noble from Poland who had basically uh, supported an aborted coup against the, uh, the ruling dynasty there and had become an itinerant wanderer, though still retaining his title, uh, but little else of the uh, position of privilege he once held. Because uh, this is a huge factor socially in this period is that you're just swarming. Europe is swarming with downwardly mobile nobility. Downwardly mobile nobles. Because you have the mobile class... And they have the land, and they have the ironclad hold on that land, but they have to divide it somehow. And whether you divide it amongst your uh, kids and dilute it, or you do strict primogenitor and just give it to the firstborn son, there are going to inevitably be kids who don't get shit. And some of them go into the, uh, the, the uh, army, some of them go into the priesthood, in the Catholic countries especially, but uh, eventually... There's just no thing, nothing to do. And so you have a lot of these guys who are going around with fancy titles. Uh, some in cases like Lasky where they've been dispossessed by backing the wrong side in a factional dispute and they just take your lands and now you're completely fucked. They're going around with their hat in hand. They're kissing ass and the better they're at bullshitting and using their title, uh, the more likely they are to gain the favor of some other power that will maybe put them back in their own position or raise them up. So they get hooked up with this guy uh, and depart for Poland with him, trying to find favor in some other court. Basically, immediately after they leave, uh, Dee's wonderful library, Best in England, gets ransacked at his home in Mortlake uh, by his creditors who basically strip it for parts and resell it. This is an actual book signed by John Dee. I-O-H-D kind of ran out of uh, room there at the end. He ran out of room. It's so cute. There's a little extra tiny E. Uh, it's like, dude, you're talking to God on the regular. You got a, you got a CB radio to to heaven, and you're you can't get E D E E on the back of a book. Uh, I'm gonna start skipping ahead here because mm-hmm. we're running a little long. Yeah, we uh, the, hurry up. Kelly's angelic language is getting more and more apocalyptic all the time, but they basically eventually end up uh, in the court of Rudolf Rudy II. Too. Rudy Deuce. Uh, who is the uh, Austrian Habsburg uh, after Maximilian II, who is now uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. And he is an ore-pondering ponderer among ore-pobberers. This guy is one of the closest thing to an alchemist you can have in uh, a a dynasty. He read the alchemical texts. He studied the the, uh, science. He he had alchemists in his court. He was constantly, he had this wonder cabinet filled with all these amazing uh, texts and objects, and he spent time with them. He had a fucking a unicorn horn. And he thought, by looking at this, he might actually be able to do the otherwise impossible feat of actually governing the Holy Roman Empire, which was impossible at that time. Uh, and he was looking for some uh, lever in the, in the ether to pull him, in, pull him through there. So if there's anybody in Europe who's going to be receptive to Dee's pitch, it was going to be him. So they go to the court. They gain access to uh, Rudolph. This is him made out of painted out of vegetables, which is uh, was in the fashion at the time, as was the fashion of the time. Uh, here's Rudolph looking to, uh, with another uh, alchemist. They gain access to the court, but at this point, D is totally in the thrall of Kelly, and Kelly is banging down D's ear, being like, "You must tell the emperor that the way to obtain victory is to repent, to repent his sinful ways, to to kneel and humble himself before God." So D goes to uh, Rudolph's court and very dutifully uh, tells the Holy Roman Empire Emperor, uh, "You got to be more humble, dude. You got to you, you, you need to respect God more. That's your big problem." And Rudolph, who 
every single day of his life has guys coming up to him telling him how he's going to be the Holy Roman, how he's going to become the universal monarch, how he is going to transcend his the structural limitations of the Holy Roman Empire and become the one king to rule them all, uh, does not respond well to this. Uh, D says, if Rudolph forsook his witnesses, God would make him outshine all emperors and imprison the devil. Uh, and also defeat the Great Turk, of course. You got to throw in defeating the Great Turk. You got to get that the, Turk uh, out of there. Remember. So, D kind of, Rudolph just kind of sits there, and as D records it, D thought he heard Rudolph's offer of protection. Quote: He spoke. He spake so low that the audience petered out into awkward silence until D belatedly realized it was over. So he just kind of stood there in silence for a while, and then had to do a. Should I? Should I go? Oh, I'm okay. So we're not no no patronage. Okay, <sighs> back to the angels. The, Let's skip to I, I, the juicy stuff. Yes. Okay. Great. Let's stick to the to the little uh, uh, after dark portion. Okay. Great. <laughs> we're gonna get a little blue. Somebody in Rudolph's court offers them a little cottage, basically in Bohemian lands, to practice their magic, and they get to just scrying, 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 scrying all day, all night, 24 they, hours a day. Scrying. You're like a 13-year-old with a, a, with a land connection and a, a, a 64-pack of Mountain Dew. Scrying. It's a scrying party. Uh, and in April 1587, angels start telling Kelly that Dee and him should participate with each other. Mm, what? Now, Dee at first takes this uh, seriously uh, about the work of decrying but after much denying, much equivocating, much uh, Kelly looking into the mirror going, no, no, you can't be, oh, you cannot be saying, no, 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 it can't be true. You can't be telling me this, angels. No, no. Kelly clarifies it's about their wives sexually. And uh, basically after much play acting, much denying, much recalcitrance, much fainting, Kelly says that the angels are saying that if the communications are going to go forward, they gotta have, fuck each other's wives. Yep, and uh, and they don't, it's not because they want to. It's because the fate of the universe. Because they're they're telling them explicitly. If it, the only way I'm gonna keep talking to you as God's emissary is if you guys fuck each other's wives. And, and he compares it to the sacrifice of Abraham. Yes. Look, dude. God told Abraham to kill his only son, and he was he was going to do it until he said no. Maybe God, maybe when we're we're just about at the moment, God will come down and say no. We don't have to do it, and we'll prove in our faith. But no, after uh, much back and forth, after much angelic conferences, uh, on the twenty first of May, fifteen eighty seven, fulfilling their sacred or duty as alchemists, as good Christians, as friends. They fuck each other's wives. It is an amazing thing in history how often got angels tell dudes to this fuck is, other the, people's wives. This is, anyone knows this, is this him guy. telling him, uh, you're not going to believe what the angels say, dude. But yeah, as Matt was just saying, it's, it's funny how whenever somebody's talking to angels, it uh, almost invariably... It always gets to wife swapping. I guess heaven's just want. one big key party. Yes. Uh, and this, is, of course, is uh, Joseph Smith. All right. I, I think we can um, skip through most yeah. of the way, way to the end here. Yeah. Uh, D goes back to England. He gets wrapped up in a bunch of other bullshit. Uh, the one joke that I'll put in is that, you know, he, he, comes, he comes home and he starts practicing magic again. And people are 
accusing him of be anti-Christian hereti- heretical views. In 1599, D publishes this, a letter containing a most brief discourse apologetical defending the legality and Christianity of my studies, to which I say, uh, my brief discourse on the de- legality and Christianity of my studies has people asking a lot of questions that I think are answered by my brief discourse. Uh he eventually gets shipped off by the, the court to be the uh, warden of Manchester College. Manchester sucks. They finally give him one of those no-show jobs. Yeah. Manchester sucks. Most of managing the College of Manchester is convincing people to shit off the bridge in the middle of the river and not on the shores of the river. Like, that's the kind of stuff he's doing at the end of his life. D ends up in the care of the Mercer's Guild in his final days, his library ransacked, surrounded by his last few remaining books, uh, dying uh, with just on top of a mountain of recorded works. So let's get to our final thoughts on this guy. Um, Here we go. There he is, the boy, John D. Look, here's the thing. John D. was kind of a loser. Mm -hmm. He spent basically his entire life obsessed with the least real parts of his very real knowledge uh, and uh, begging for money from way more rich, way more powerful people who were only humoring him and using his ideas to further their own policy agendas uh, when they came. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not very glamorous, but hey, we're still talking about him because in the end, you know, if we're trying to make a 21st century appraisal of what D was, this is what D thought of himself. Oppenheimer, he is going to change the world with his thoughts, but this is who D really was. Slide shows a picture of Sean McElwee. <laughs> This is what these types of people were for their time, is people who are there to provide justification for what the people in power already believe is yes. true. But, they're, but the thing is, they're in an advanced position of the people acting. The people acting are acting out of self-interest. People in power are acting out of what they need to do in their own mind to maintain their power. People like D, who are outside of the nexus of power, are able to concentrate so fully on the moment that they can see beyond the brute necessity that motivates uh, uh, political actors and, and literally hear the voice of God and not in a supernatural way, but in a species being kind of way that they can feel God in the movement of all humanity around them. And that's because of their intense focus. And that allows them to swim against the current of history, at least for a little bit, because you are able to see farther than anybody else. But because no one will understand you, you're left kissing the ass of people in actual power and having to suborn whatever you're really hearing and feeling to what will keep you employed and with not being burned at the stake. And so most of the details he comes up with, the monad, folks, give it up one more time for well, the, the monad. monad. Please. Go home and ponder I, your monad. I, 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 I beg you people. The ponder angel scrying. The monad. the monad, the angel scrying. It, look, it seems incredibly goofy to us, but he was correct that a rupture was coming. And that England would have a very important role to play in the future if it just pursued its overseas colonies and got a big navy. Um, and he was possible if to change the future, to move these through these things if you were able to move with things, if you were able to maybe embrace these ideas of overseas colonies and stuff instead of against them. Uh, and the thing was, England eventually followed through his manual of imperial writings, whether it adopted it on purpose and because of him, not really. You know, it wasn't that influential. But he saw what wouldn't what the future was. He literally did see the future, whether or not he realized exactly why he was seeing it. Uh, and the future that he saw would result with the monarch that you know, the person who would take the place of the monarch that he was uh, 
advising future Queen Elizabeth, eventually standing with their boot on the neck of the world for like two centuries. So is that magic? Kind of? Like, I don't know. Uh, Everyone was doing the same thing. Everyone was building a new world, but only some people were doing it consciously. You know, like at some element applying their will, and he was one of them. And I will say... That one thing is just as just a little addendum. Just fifty or so years after his death, we have another legendary mathematician of sorts, uh, English guy Isaac Newton. And what was Newton into? Lenses, math, astronomy, all the same stuff that D D was into. That D was pioneering right before him. Except Isaac gets remembered as a world historical genius, one of the greatest to ever do it. And you know, D is a goofy magus from the from the Elizabethan times. And Newton was doing alchemy too. He was looking for the philosopher's stone the all the time. He was mil- using so much time to do the, that. Out of the ten million extant words of Newton's writing that we have, one million of them are about alchemy. And Newton uh, notes of himself uh, specifically. He said this about his work: uh, "If I if I see further, I stand on the shoulders of giants." Many people said that, but he said that about himself. Uh, and some of Newton's notes single out. The Monus Hierographica, as say, specifically saying, quote, their, those, their numbers, points, lines, and geometrical figures are used with remarkable industry to signify natural things. Once you put your foot there, more will immediately open. He was working from D's stuff. D is in our lineage of the thought that will define our modern age. I think that's good. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's perfect. All right. We went to, oh, this is uh, Newton stuff. Give it up for John D. All right. We went super, we went longer than we wanted to on this segment. We are going to take a uh, short break. Everybody is required to hit the bar to, uh, and, uh, you know, even if you just get a club soda, tip your bartenders. We're going to be back out in like 10 minutes. We're going to bring uh, Matt Carp. We're going to bring Will Menneker out. We're going to do a Q&A. Any questions you have on any subject chapter related, we're going to try to get to. We have a heart out of, I believe, around 10, but we're going to try to get through everyone. Thank you very much. Hit that intermission music. What's up, everybody? I know that many of you are probably still at the bar. That's totally fine. Feel free. This is like the casual portion of the evening. Feel free to continue getting drinks, maybe chit-chat in the back. We can just keep it down a little bit. Uh, but we are now going to enter the Q&A portion of the night. And to do that, we'd love to bring out two of our closest colleagues. Of course, you know, you love, it's it's the host of uh, Chapo Trap House. Put it together for Will Menneker. And... If we're talking history, if we're in Brooklyn, we need our main guy, our our 19th century correspondent. Put your hands together for Matt Carp. Um, The buffest tenured professor in the United States. Uh, Thank you. Here's us, uh, you know, a a round table. We're chilling, we're relaxing. Um, Let's talk tulips, gentlemen. All right. (laughs) It's tragic because we're coming. We're, we 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 are personifying what fashion historians call the great male renunciation. Right? <laughs> you guys know about this? This is when men stop. We went from the frock to the suit. Sometime <laughs> in the late 18th century, early 19th century, we lost 
all of the, the juice. The foppish dandiness. Yeah, we lost it. We you lost know whose fault it was? Bo Brummel. Uh, <laughs> That's why I'm here in this shitty hoodie, and all you are wearing this slob clothes. I, I and none look of nice. us have cool frocks. I dressed up for this evening, thank you very much. I had to take off the ruffle because it was getting too hot. But here's how this is going to work. we got a mic for the audience over there. Please line up uh, in an orderly fashion. Uh, this is, you know, you can ask questions about hell on earth. You can ask questions about any part of history, Cushvlog-esque uh, topics. Uh, Matt's specialty is 19th century history, but can obviously talk about almost anything. Will's here to talk uh, regular Chapo type stuff or movie mindset. Of course, I will talk uh, about uh, uh, anything you... anything Holland related because you know I spent all of high school studying those Dutch masters. You know what I'm about? <laughs> <laughs> but I believe <laughs> talking about weed, folks. But I believe because he just saw it, we're gonna lead in while people get lined up with uh, Matt Carp has some hot Avatar takes. Well, yeah, I do. I do. You got some Avatar fans in the house. First of all, I, I wanted to say that I'm honored to be a part of the Synod of Gowanus. <laughs> yes. The colloquy of Littlefield. We and have I, a Synod. I, I, I want to begin by, by stating for the record that uh, Matt Iglesias is an abecedarian, a toe-eater, <laughs> and a uh, fart-ass. Okay, so we've got some Lutheran house. But I wanted to make a little transition if we got some Avatar fans from the 16th century to the 19th century because I just, I represent a century. Uh, that's my century. It's my baby. The, the 16th century is the violent birth pangs of modernity. We were there. We saw it. We went, even by, by Newton, you're already in a different place mm -hmm. when you get to the 17th century. The, we were talking about this just, just now. The 19th century is, is basically capitalism's adolescence. Yeah. You know, it's, it's when the shit puberty bursts out, right? It's the kind of capitalism learns to come. So when money and, gets pubes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so an avatar... I, I was thinking deep, and okay, this could go a little long. You might have to cut the mic. But Avatar, if you love it, and if you're a 19th century guy, you realize this movie is steeped. It is baked. It is cooked. It's aesthetic imagination. It's particular reference points. Every element of its sort of cosmos, I think, is driven, is, is, is sort of, its origin is in 19th century America. So I'm going to go through, and it all comes from the great guys, sorry, of the 19th century. It's You've all, got two minutes, it's all Melville, Twain. Thoreau, Whitman. And let me do it real quick. I'll go real quick, one yeah. by one, right? So Melville, that's obvious, right? We yeah. have industrial Piacon, capitalism. Piacon. You do Piacon. that. Piacon. We, got, we, got, we, got the guy, we got the guy losing his arm. And by the way, Matt, James Cameron confirmed yeah, that he's he will back be as back. Have. Scoresby. Yeah, so you've got Melville. You've got industrial capitalism run amok. You've got the mad, you know, violence of, you know, this incredible cunning, you know, the crab mechs and the triworks all devoted to the per per basically the pursuit of a fetishized commodity this this like, like you know oil to sell to fire up a lamp in Massachusetts all of this is this is capitalism right so melville boom okay uh, we got Thoreau. Obviously, Thoreau. The whole idea of nature is sublime comes from Thoreau, basically. He's living, yeah, he's living. His mom's doing his laundry in, in, <laughs> in, in, in this cabin Walden. in Massachusetts. But it's precisely the proximity that Thoreau had to the market world, the market society of 19th century Massachusetts that allows him to have the kind of vision of the wild as sublime. We, we, we need to witness our limits transgressed. That is Pandora. That is Pandora. Our limits being... That is Jake Sully. Okay, Thoreau. Okay, number two. Number three, we have Twain. What is the concept of the Avatar, the dramatic concept? It is an escape, right? It is, a, it is, it is, it is getting on a raft and turning your back on the social order, the a rules Connecticut that made you. <laughs> a Connecticut Aussie in King James Cameron's court. <laughs> yeah, that. And it's Huck Finn, a fucking bedraggled fail son, 
getting on a raft with an escaped slave and turning against the social order that made him to help Jim find his freedom, ultimately. And at the end of Huck Finn, what does he fucking do? Does he go back to get civilized with Aunt Sally? No. No, he lights out for the Indian territory. Lights out for the territory, damn it. Anyway, okay, 30 seconds. Last one is Whitman, right? The cosmos, right? It's all transcendent. Big Jim Cameron. He's not a Marxist, folks. He's not. I'm sorry. But he (laughs) is a transcendentalist. He's a transcendentalist. I can fuck with that. And he thinks, as Any Whitman says, you guys side. were talking about this. The whole point of of of, of Avatar is that there is no death, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is there. It's about life and death, and about deathlessness, and its dark sides and its warm sides. Whitman, right? The smallest sprout shows that there is really no death. Mm. All goes onward and outward, uh, and to die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier. That's in there. That open your eyes. That is it. You do not die. You live on. This is 19, and 19th century America is the text for all this stuff because it is the coal face of modernity, industrial capitalism coming into being. It's the front lines of imperial exploitation. It's the front lines of capitalist market mentality. It's the front lines of everything. So no wonder it's Cameron's text. Done. We see you, Matt yes, Carr. We see okay. you. We see Folks, you, Matt we Carr. See you. We see you, Matt we Carr. We see you. All right, we're going to turn to audience questions because I did promise this would be a Q&A. Can, in the booth, would it be possible for you to... Give me the light like it's a stand-up show at the latest possible time that we can be on, we're allowed to be on stage. Thank you. First question. Real scary light. Um, uh, however you like to pronounce his name, you guys gave a brief shout-out to, I like to think of it like, Tycho Brahe. Tycho Brahe. Oh, yeah, that's Taco, one way to do it. Tycho Brahe. Okay, yeah. How was it that he lost his nose and which metal replaced it when and why? You guys seem like you probably have some really interesting thoughts about that. <laughs> I, I, I think not. it was syphilis. I don't know, though. The answer is usually simple. <laughs> didn't he, didn't Brahe also, like, die of overeating at his own dinner or yeah, something like yeah. that? Yeah, He was a party animal. There's a... Yeah. Bladder, <laughs> yeah, but, bladder but, burst, yes. But before the invention of modern medicine, if a man was losing a part of his face, nine times out of ten, it was syphilis. But one time out of ten, it was a duel. <laughs> a duel. Next question. Thank you. Hey, uh, thanks so much. Um, in doing your presentation, uh, I was just struck by how much, like, what happened if a John D. got on a throne? Like, what happened if that guy, and you had made reference to Rudolph, but I, my mind was drawn to it. I know it's not in quite the same context, but actually, James the Sixth and First, yes. and his sort of obsession with... He was obsessed America. with demons and witchcraft. We had to skip over that part, He yes. thought, he thought, uh, he, he went in a chivalric uh, mission to get his wife from... Uh, uh, Denmark. He was marrying the a daughter of the, the Danish king, and on the way back, there was a terrific storm that uh, nearly sank the boat, and he became convinced that witches had hexed his voyage. And so he came home, he, he started out of, from scratch a witch craze and burning campaign in Scotland. By the and, way, this is the, the king that comes directly after Elizabeth I, yes, the next yes, king they of bring England. bring her in, at, him in after first, she dies. Very yes. first part of the uh, 17th century, yeah. 1600s. Uh, and, and he becomes fascinated with witches, but of course he also has them in his employ because he needs to know. He needs uh, anti-hexers. He needs too. anti-hexers to block out the <laughs> hex. Uh, and he writes a book about demonology. He writes a book about witchcraft and demonology as a fucking sovereign. So that is the closest thing you'd say to a D in power. But what, does he actually get to do anything? No, he mostly just drinks himself to death. Because you, there's these golden cage, this golden fetters of necessity on any monarch that prevents them from really doing anything with their flights of fancy. Like Rudolph, he wanted to be a D-type guy, but he mostly just sat around. Because you and just having can't. other guys tell him, like, right. hey, if you follow my specific 
programmed to the Philosopher's Stone, you will become the guy. Yeah. And him be like, eh, I don't know about that one. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Next question. I'm uh, probably risking a lot by assuming people are as dorky as I am, but anyone here play with Warhammer or Fantasy Miniatures? <laughs> Say that one more time. Anyone play with Warhammer Fantasy Miniatures growing up? No. Though somebody did DM me the other day to say that there is actually a tabletop role-playing game of the, the Thirty Years' War, yes. Yeah, no, not the Thirty that. Years' War, just of the Reformation. Oh, yeah. oh, that too, yeah. It's basically that with dragons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, are, are you talking about Game of Thrones? Soldiers? It's, yeah, it's great. Warhammer Fantasy. It's, uh, are, they, are they like toys? Like, like yeah, you, soldiers? You, you can them. have them fuck yeah, each there's other? There's rules yeah, okay. to have them fight each other. You have to roll a Ladies die. Ladies and gentlemen, he's being very modest here, but this is Henry Cavill, the star of Superman. Woo! <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I spent so much time writing historical podcasts over the last two years. I've had no time to game, which is the great, one of the great tragedies of my life. If somebody in Brooklyn has a, a very obscure uh, war game going on, uh, after next week, invite me to it. I would love to, uh, to play some kind of game where I could uh, role play through a deck of cards, The Life of Martin Luther. I don't want to play Warhammer, but I am intrigued by the lore, I have to say. <laughs> There are probably novels you could read. It's there are novels, really and I'm good. kind of interested. I was actually browsing the wiki the other day. <laughs> like, ooh, the warp. You got to read the uh, Go Trek and Felix books. Yeah. There. All right. Thank you. Thank Next you. question. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask with four professionals and experts on the stage, uh, as a childcare person and educator, I was wondering what certain aspects of either like movie mindset or history or media literacy are overlooked or not touched on in like early education through high school and what would you educate the youth on before they went into the real world can i kick this one off here I, no, I mean, I, I think it's actually a very good question. And I'll say this because I'm biased, and I know, I know Matt will, Matt Carp will pick up on this week as Matt Christman. History. History. History is what should be taught. And here's the thing. To get people interested in history, you've got to tell a good story. Because history is a story that, unfortunately, we're all a part of. <laughs> but, it, but, but history, it's a very funny story. It's a very exciting story. And it's a story that uh, you're a part of. So, I mean, like, to get kids introduced, I mean, or get kids excited about history, it's like, you know, when I was in the publishing industry, like, I would throw a manuscript in the fucking garbage within five minutes if it hadn't made me laugh. If it hadn't just, like, if it hadn't, if it hadn't ripped the chuckle out of me, then it's very hard to hold my attention, let alone someone who's, like, you know, 10 or 11 today, who, did, like, grew up with the internet. So... I think teachers have got to start getting a little bit, give them a little razzle-dazzle. We've got a tight five <laughs> on, 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 any, on any historical figure because the thing is, like, all historical figures, all historical conflicts are very funny. With Hilarious. The with the benefit of, like, centuries after all the people died in them, it is quite funny. The one we're doing, it started when they threw some motherfuckers out a window. <laughs> They land. They only survived they landed by landing in manure. And manure. They lived. Which they then lived. all the people on their side had to be like, no, 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 angels saved them. Mary herself came down from heaven and guided their fall. And everybody who was there at the time was like, they landed as shit, folks. We saw it with our own eyes. No, but like, just one more thing. It's like, to get the kids, kids look at history. It's like, oh, this is just a bunch of boring shit that happened in the past. This is just all about dead people, which is true. But it's like, Anakin was Anakin before he was Darth Vader. <laughs> So it's history, all history is really it's the prequel, prequel to like yeah. the, the present second that you are in right now. Yeah. 
I don't know if this fully works, but you know, I, at the beginning of the Hell on Earth series, I shouted, shouted out my AP Euro teacher. Uh, and the thing was is that he came in on the first day of class, you know, we were in 10th grade, and said, I am a Marxist historian. Forget anything you've ever heard about Marxists, but I'm going to tell you the mechanisms of history and how it works. And that really locked it into my head that there is like a, a, a device that you can put in your brain that makes history not just a litany of things that happen, but a story that is repeatable and moving toward and maybe you, not like it, it, it has a destination. Maybe you don't know where it'll eventually be, but you but when you line it all up, you can chart how it moves along this thing. And, and that really clicked it for importantly, me. Importantly, you are a part of it. Yes. You are not it's not something you're observing from a safe distance. It is you're enmeshed within it. I will say also at the Unlike very like literature. <laughs> <laughs> no. At the to just shout out that teacher one more time. He, he died last year, and I'm, I'm very sad that I missed his death by one year before I could dedicate the series to him. Um, once we'd taken the AP test, and um, we had that like week afterwards where there's schools that's still in session, but the test is over. He spent it by uh, bringing in a big shoebox and pulling out a freezer bag full of redacted papers. And he was like, look, we got up to basically the 1940s. We are talking about labor a lot. This is the FBI file on my father who was a union organizer at an ice packing plant in uh, New Orleans in the 40s. And every night when we ate dinner together, there would be a black car of feds parked across the street from us watching us. And this is the thousand-page FOIA file on his life and things. This was my dad in my childhood. And pass this around and read it. You can read about him like taking me to school in this, which is to say that this is my life. Like, the stuff that I've been talking about, like, really is still now and like that was the full scope of it like so i don't know if that answers your question but that's like how i got be like turned on to this I, i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna do a professional descent no you don't need to education is not lighting a fire it's filling a bucket look into the palantir of wikipedia and get the facts i have a three-year-old daughter I make her memorize the Lord's Privy Seal of, of, of England so get on that okay can you Thank you very much. Next, next question, please. Hey, how you doing? Um, so the, the concept of free real estate was uh, obviously very foundational to Folks, your... it's free real estate. <laughs> yes, it's free real estate. Um, free real estate. Um, to your series about the presidents and you know, its role in American history and how very much the lack of free real estate right now has its role in uh, why so many things in America suck right now. Um, I, I'm curious, though, about what ways, uh, if any, free real estate... Uh, plays in your new series in 17th century history. Well, it's the see, this whole thing is really the the, uh, the the conflict that spurs the move for free real estate to relieve the social contradictions that are piling up in this no longer tenable relationship between exploding capitalism as a mode of production and feudalism as a political structure on top of it. And that just causes this explosion of social forces that has to go somewhere. And one of the places it goes is out. And the colonial uh, projects become this self-conscious venting mechanism. Even in the, 15, in the 1650s, during the English Civil War, you got uh, Puritans in England saying, thank God for the colonies so that all these freaks and psychos have somewhere to go and we don't have to put them all in jail because if we do that, all their family are going to go crazy and it's just going to lead to conflict. And they postponed the English Civil War by decades probably by providing this venting mechanism. Uh, and it's going to be in the new world where European social uh, reality will have its contradictions resolved through the application of free real estate. The word you're looking for is Lebensraum. Oh. Indeed. Indeed, yes. yes. 
Hitler, Hitler got that idea from someone, and it was us. Jesus. But yes, it is that, and it's that new terrain of conflict that is going to keep things going. Because the Thirty Years' War does bring a temporary peace to the continent, but it, it, it enlivens this conflict over colonies that's going to define all the fighting that comes later. They're done with talking about God, but they're going to be talking about who has what very shortly. Uh, thank you. Next question. Let me first just point out that this question of Lebensraum has been answered definitively by Leonard Nimoy <laughs> in Star Trek VI when... This is a question uh, for Will. In, in Star Trek VI, <laughs> when uh, he's sitting down to a dinner with some Klingons who say that uh, you have not read Shakespeare until you have read him in the original Klingon. And Shatner, Shatner, Shatner is offended by this. Shatner cannot deal with it. But Nimoy is able to step in and say, uh, Lebensraum does mean breathing room, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you, our opponents, the Klingons, allegories for the USSR, actually need to conquer more territory, right? You don't. In Star Trek VI, the situation is presented that they control Chernobyl, or rather it is a moon that... All right. Thank you very much. Will, capsule review of Star Trek VI. Uh, you know, one of the better Star Trek movies, you know? The yeah. best. The best. One of the, one of the better ones, you know, and we get the, the first appearance of Rene Auberginois, uh, sort of a stock, one of Robert Altman's players. It's his first appearance in the deleted scenes to Star Trek VI. Later, of course, he would go on to play Odo in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The guy with the ears? Oh, no, no, no. He's the guy with, like, the featureless face, the shapeshifter, the shapeshifter, oh, okay, shape okay, okay. Odo. I don't watch Star Trek. But, you know, I mean, the, the Klingons, they're a big fan of Lebensraum because despite what they, despite the Kittimer Accords and what they may have told Kirk, they would later go on to break the Kittimer Accords and invade the Cardassian Empire. Well, they were the, Space Nine. She was a colonized people. Thank you very much. Next question, please. Oh, oh. We're getting the light. We're getting the light. Oh, we're get, we are actually getting the light. We we're going to do one more question. I'm sorry. We, we got some Star Trek topics. Let's get one more. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, real quick. Thank you for the Hella Presidents memes. Free real estate. Me and my boy over there, we taught U.S. history. And I absolutely stole all those memes. Well, <laughs> That's yeah. what's real, up. Real talk question. Thank no, you. That's what I like to hear. Pretending to the lecture memes. today. Pretending to the lecture. Okay. So, like, old cold shit, right? You know, we're eventually going to evolve from feudalism into nationalism. Am I wrong? Yeah, it comes out of okay, that. Yeah. So, so nationalism, what is the connection across cultures between the occult and forming a national identity? Ooh, it, it, that's it, very it, interesting. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, the people who are going to build modern notions of nationalism are going to be this middle class. Yeah, Benedict Anderson, you know, the imagined communities, it is, it is an information revolution that creates nationalism. And that is not coming from anybody. It's coming from those, the very classes we've been describing, the type of nerds who sit around and try to find out God's phone number. <laughs> and so, yeah, these people end up building national myths through their contribution to the world of letters that is going to form the world that people who come into literacy are going to inherit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nationalism, the invention of intellectuals. Yeah. I mean, can I ask one more question? Yeah, just quick. So, so, yeah, these weird people, like, with too much time on their hands, you know, hell presidents, tricky dicks, sitting around, scheming on the boat, right? So, you know, all these people have too much time on their hands to think about this weird stuff and form, like, a mathematical justification for these bizarre ways for these, you know, people motivated by their material interests to carry out 
awful atrocities against us. Yeah. How do we combat that? Like, what? where's the motivation for us to, to fight that going forward, the positive I, stuff, I, right? I'm not really kidding when I say this. We need our own monad. We need a monad, folks. Uh, I, uh, with that, with bring it all back to the monad. Yes. Find your own monad. Find your monad, folks. I want to see everybody's monads. I hope people are sending me monads. Open uh, your eyes. Uh, sorry that the Q and A portion of the night got a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, truncated by uh, us having to talk about looking at God through a mirror for uh, seventy-five minutes, but. Uh, we will be, uh, at least I, and I think some of us, the uh, other people up here, will be going to Park Life, which is directly behind this on the next block facing north. Like, if you go out and take three lefts, uh, you will get to Park Life. We will be over there in just a bit. We will be hanging out. Uh, I'm, we, I will be happy to answer and chat for a while about anything. Uh, I will not be wearing the neck ruffle uh, unless, uh, depending on how many drinks I will be wearing the neck ruffle. But thank you guys all so much. Uh, R.I.P. David Crosby, there, but there is really no death. Remember uh, that. Your guys' support of this series, everybody's enthusiasm about it has been so, so uh, encouraging. We love you guys so much. Uh, and hopefully talk to you guys more soon. Thanks so much for coming out. This has been Hell on Earth. True.